0: I'm Will Beatty. I'm Ben Picari. And we are two graduate students at the
1: University of Notre Dame's Medieval Institute. We're here to chat with students and scholars of the medieval world about what they do and how they came to do it. So who have we got today, Ben? Today we're sitting down with Dr. Rabiblio, who is a professor of history, of philosophy at KU Leuven, and we'll be talking about his upcoming lecture at the Medieval Institute. Well then, let's go and meet him in the Middle Ages. Dr. Robiglio, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us this afternoon. We are very pleased to have you with us here at the Medieval Institute.
2: Thank you very much for having, for having we, me with you.
1: Yes. Um, we wanted to start our conversation. You have published widely on many uh, different topics. Um, and so we're curious when someone asks you, um, maybe in a more a less formal situation, what it is that you do? How do you typically answer that question?
2: Well, uh, certainly from uh, an academic point of view, my area of specialization is uh, mostly medieval uh, philosophy. However, I wouldn't uh, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, the label uh, medievalist uh, uh, is uh, one of those that I uh, promptly uh, use to define my identity as a scholar. Mm-hmm. I Prefer and I tend to uh, say that I'm a philosopher, and when I say which kind of philosopher, well, an historian of philosopher, which kind of history of philosopher, rather pre-modern history. Well, pre-modern history is very large. Yes. Which part? Yeah. Well, le- from late antiquity to uh, to the Renaissance. Uh, in this sense, this is uh, uh, I tend to avoid the definition of being a medievalist, uh, also because. Um, uh, it has to do uh, with the training. I was mm-hmm. um, my training as a medievalist was. Uh, say a byproduct of my studies at the Catholic University in Milano but uh, my master was on contemporary thought on uh, mm. uh, existentialism in the 30s of the 20th century uh, I uh, graduated in what is called theoretical philosophy so pure philosophy is not history of philosophy and from the historian I remember uh, one of my first participation in a workshop uh, Um, just after my PhD, I was was called by a senior colleague as a bastard medievalist. (laughs) So having been called a bastard as a medievalist, I tend to avoid to define myself as a medievalist. So this is... I understand. I understand. Um, So what
1: was what first attracted you to philosophy then as a field, if that seems to be your...
2: Crime, love. Yeah, and uh, well, a, I would say that is he's a, originally a, rather a negative choice. So philosophy seemed to me that field of uh, study uh, which concerned uh, useless uh, uh, topics that are not immediately relevant, but that uh, leave the door open to many directions. And for instance, philosophy is a kind of studies that, even though is generally in the area of the humanities, is a kind of studies which is not strictly literary. is mm. a, a kind of study open to sciences, open to other uh, line uh, of, uh, of investigation. And so what I found attractive is to leave door open, not to choose for a path that would have excluded uh, other things. I had a passion for poetry, for music, uh, but I had also an interest in uh, mathematics and in its history. So the choice of philosophy was a non-choice, was uh, the way to avoid to determine too early what I wanted to do. Uh, concerning the uh, Middle Ages and the interest for the Middle Ages, I think that it's very difficult for me to identify Uh, one uh, single uh, motivation. There are layers uh, of of motivation, Uh, certainly having been born in a little village in the south of Piedmont uh, with uh, an intact medieval uh, urban center Mm. um, uh, where you have a lot of vestige under your eyes, etc. These cannot be avoided as certainly constitutes an element.
1: Mm -hmm. However, it
2: is a very general and implicit one. Uh, I would say that uh, I could go on and say, but if I want to isolate uh, something, I would say when I was um, uh, at the beginning of the liceo, the high school, was the reading of the, uh, I was uh, 14, 15, 15, and the publication of The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco uh, was um, from the same region. Uh, my professor of Latin, uh, Franca Bonomo, she had been a student, a classmate of Umberto Eco at the Liceo in Alessandria. So uh, Umberto Eco came once uh, in class. At the time it was not so... F- Famous as it would become later, of course. He has just published uh, the second novel, uh, The Pendulo of Foucault. But even in the second novel, which I read first and and then I read The Name of the Rose, there is the the Templars and the process against the Templars. So the Middle Ages plays a very important role also in the um, Pendulo di Foucault. And uh, certainly uh, echo and his scholarship. Were very s- s- seducing for me because on the one side was a philosopher engaged with contemporary debate, semiotics, uh, philosophy of language, uh, communication, etc., mass media. Uh, on the other side, uh, he had uh, written a dissertation of Aquinas, and the Middle Ages had remained constantly a sort of uh, uh, red thread in his uh, in his publication. Uh, In um, 1974, he had published uh, just after the 68 and all the turmoil, uh, which also implied at the academic level a dismissal for medieval studies. Mm -hmm. He wrote a a praise of Aquinas uh, which which was extremely witty because uh, he stressed all the elements that usually are not stressed in the picture of Aquinas, that he was a radical thinker, he was someone who went against uh, many conventions, etc, etc. So I would say that Eco both as a novelist but also in his essay uh, and the fact that he was in a way a familiar figure, for this reason I. uh, briefly sketched is probably the single most important influence that brought me mm. to remain uh, with this interesting philosophy but to look uh, more carefully into the Middle Ages as uh, as a uh, area of, uh, of experiences uh, which uh, w- was manifold uh, sophisticated complex and uh, uh, less known than other periods fantastic wow.
0: there's a i mean there's a lot to discuss there and i know we want to talk a little bit about aquinas in more detail and and his sort of relevance to your research and and why he's such a an influential and talks about figure but i was just wanted to pick up on this um thread on echo and the fact that, as you say, he, he became quite famous—certainly one of the more famous medievalist scholars in the world—and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on why those books, *Foucault's uh, Pendulum* and *The Name of the Rose*. What was it about them, do you think, that kind of resonated with audiences?
2: This is very hard to say. Yes. However, uh, I uh, would uh, put—I uh, would try at, at uh, an attempt. Of answer. Um, saying that uh, with uh, what uh, has been called postmodernism, one of the features of this movement, uh, uh, which is not really, is rather a family of, uh, of actions, of uh, uh, theories, of, but uh, they have some common uh, denominators. One is the dismissal of uh, the agenda of modernity, mm-hmm. the idea of a Big narrative consistent progressive there is a sort of a, a agenda of enlightenment and so on and so forth which still remain even today but is uh, the postmodern uh, thinkers as uh, and uh, writers and literary critics have really shown all the fragilities of these uh, these attempts well, the Middle Ages, the medieval period, uh, no matter how far back in time, uh, shares in some of those features uh, to uh, resist to an easy uh, uh, description according to some uh, broad category that englobe there are intellectual history of the Middle Ages who try to do so, of course. But as soon as you go to the sources, you immediately see that there are different cultures, there are Mm -hmm. uh, a continuous, a permanent transfer of knowledge uh, that uh, goes on um, among languages and cultures. Uh, uh, Even uh, many uh, institutions were in a, in a not yet in a form as then been established uh, moving from Europe I came here and entering the US I'm subject of a US law as in Belgium I'm subject to European law and Belgian law but in the Middle Ages uh, this was not obvious at all there, there was a concept of personal law but if you now think of big corporations, etc., we are going back to this idea where the law is no more the law of the state, but is a sort of a, uh, private law that uh, of the corporations. So we have some phenomena today, let's say from uh, the late sixties with an acceleration until today, which uh, uh, allow us to see the. Uh, let's say, the anomalies and the uh, rapture in what we consider the standard uh, narratives, and these the Middle Ages uh, acquires an actuality. Probably uh, people are not necessarily making the comparison. Uh, the comparison may be even not necessary, but uh, you uh, when you read those sources, when you enter this world, when you enter the Middle Ages, you see that you have a sort of, uh, of shock, of recognition that something is so different and still this difference help you to, uh, to orientate better, even to cast doubt on some assumption that for, uh, for long has been, uh, has been ruling uh, in scholarship, but I think that today we are gradually going out of it. So, we are back in the early 80s when Eco wrote the name of the rose. Uh, What now is evident in medieval study was not so evident. But, uh, uh, I just mentioned before, uh, on Saturday I was in Chicago. I stopped there two days before coming to Notre Dame also uh, to join in in the celebrations for the 50th Anniversary of the publication of The Heresy of the Free Spirit by uh, Robert Lerner. And uh, in the discussion they came out was exactly how this book is, in a way, of course, is a serious uh, uh, scholarly effort which resists any actualization. However, uh, it's hard not to see, uh, and one of the speakers commenting even uh, made an explicit reference to the hippie culture in California and mm-hmm. uh, etc. To this mm-hmm. moment, uh, well, as you know, in the novel of Eco, there are uh, these uh, um, spiritual movement among the Franciscan, uh, have ever uh, aspects that uh, for those living in Dozia in Italy. Uh, were reminiscent of what was going on with some political movement li- li- like the Brigate Rosse and so on. Is um, a sort of, a, so I would say he was able, he was lucky maybe, uh, or but he was able in a very early stage to see uh, the germs that were already there of what now is generally understood. as We are, Nobody would uh, now uh, have uh, problems uh, in uh, in accepting uh, this, let's say, uh, multiplicity uh, of the Middle Ages and so on. So I think that this is probably not the reason of the success, but certainly uh, the fascination could be connected to that, of this uh, strange way in which postmodern culture and uh, pre-modern culture share in the dismissal of modernity as a value in itself. Modernity may have many valuable things, but in itself, just qua modern is not per se a value. Well, this idea is obviously uh, shared by the (laughs) pre-modern era, but is also one of the features of the postmodern era, I think.
0: Right. So in a sense, Echo, of course, was very forward-thinking in that way, sort of... uh, Predicting some of these later later movements in intellectual thought, and also in a strange way, I suppose we never in that same way that people say we've always been medieval. Exactly, we never left the Middle Ages, or we've returned to it, um, but in a very new way. Yeah,
1: and perhaps through the through the genre of novel, right, being able to reach a wider audience with that idea of humanizing and bringing close a lot of these very medieval ideas is something that are relatable and that feel um, closer than perhaps people might initially think when they think of medieval thought, medieval life. They have their stereotypes that Echo's work, right, across his work, was able to bring to the present,
2: right, in very effective ways. I would also add, uh, as a footnote to this uh, picture, uh, the fact that the Anno movie, uh, The Name of the Rose, featuring a very... uh, very effective Sean Connery in the role of William of Baskerville uh, contributed a lot to make of what was a, a successful book a long seller what mm-hmm. was a bestseller became a long seller I think also thanks to the movie and uh, and uh, to what uh, to this visibility that it acquired
0: right yeah and I wonder if you see that as well with other modern medievalist books like of course the da vinci code being yeah. one of the classics right with the tom hanks adaptation um yeah they just keep keep on keep on selling amazingly yes. yeah
1: yes so to focus now on your work and yeah. your upcoming lecture um maybe this is too hard something to talk about as everything is connected to everything else um how do you as a scholar when you receive an invitation like this begin to think about okay this is perhaps the topic, what what do I want to talk about? Are you already working on something relevant to this? Or do you have something from before that you can bring back out? Or is a completely new idea called for when you get an invitation such as oh, this? Oh,
2: okay. Um, well, sometimes the invitation come also with a specific uh, uh, request to work on a particular author or topic and in that kind I have uh, If I accept, I have to accept also the topic, which usually if they ask a certain topic, because I had already written on it uh, Mm -hmm. in a way, so it's not, uh, usually it's not too painful to accept (laughs) those invitations. But it's particularly nice uh, to be invited and having the freedom to choose uh, the topic. In this sense, uh, I really, the choice was very easy. It was just uh, the work I'm in doing. So the, mm. the what I'm presenting, what I'm working now, what I have already published, so it's not just a, a beginning, work in progress in which you could say well you are coming here please give give us some substance if you are just beginning it may be interesting for you but <laughs> why? why the medieval institute should pay a trip to someone on a couple of nights of hotel to just uh, uh, listen to the wandering musing <laughs> about what can be no there is already a research done but it's still um, an investigation that is going on and is connected to a book that i hoped it was already published for this date but uh, partly for uh, my delay in uh, sending back uh, the manuscript partly for the pandemic uh, delays and other books that women uh, uh, is not yet published but is now let's say uh, suprelo uh, which is a book on dante which has the Ita- is uh, is written in Italian but the title is a contribution to romance philosophy and so i I wanted to to make uh, a point on this, uh, which uh, is uh, is not uh, certainly is not of uh, paramount importance. However, is an aspect that it seems to me not uh, trivial, not yet mm-hmm. uh, particularly explored, and so it may be interesting for you to to listen. So this is uh, the choice was just uh, since I have no particular request. Yes, I am doing what I'm just doing.
1: Well, we're excited to hear what you've been excited about and working on. For perhaps um, our listeners who aren't as familiar with some of the works of of Dante, I, I can't imagine um, growing up in Italy. Right? How is Dante presented um, as 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 a literary figure and more? Uh, growing up, is is that something that you encounter pretty young? Is that something perhaps in high school? Or well, I, I guess w- when did you first encounter Dante, and did you immediately take to?
2: Well, let me make a, a little digression. Yes. If you look on the landscape of uh, academic jobs, not only in Italy, but even mm-hmm. outside Italy, it is a fact that many uh, medievalists are Italian or born in Italy or partly educated in Italy. And one could say, well, there is this love for Middle Ages in Italy. But I think that there is a very institutional point that all the students of the um, liceo... Uh, have to read uh, the Divine Comedy. And the Divine Comedy is also, among many other things, is also an introduction into the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and a quite sophisticated introduction. But uh, coming here uh, and mentioning Dante uh, is also intimidating and is quite, I'm thrilled because Notre Dame, um, uh, but I, I heard that I should pronounce Notre Dame, right?
0: Well, I I do it wrong. I stick with the British pronunciation. I just say Notre Dame. Notre it, it's Dame. Probably Notre Dame. Well, <laughs> how do you say it? How do you
1: say? It? It's funny when I think about it in abstract. It's Notre Dame. But if I'm talking about, say, like how did the football team do, or what? it's, yeah, it's Notre, yeah, Dame. Notre Dame.
2: Okay. So it's, it it varies. Well, you will cut this part. <laughs> oh,
1: it's fine. But
2: uh, uh, here is one uh, of the best center uh, in North America. Uh, of Dante studies, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of contacts with uh, Europe. I, I know a uh, lot of the people. Almost virtually all the people that are working on Dante here uh, are acquaintances or friends of mine. Uh, so this is a very good place uh, to to work on Dante, and it's a good place from the beginning because the ZAM collection goes back to the almost to the foundation, to the really to the. End of 19, uh, beginning of the 20th century, and is a collection uh, of uh, concerning Dante, mm-hmm. which is in the holdings of uh, the library in Notre Dame, and then in the last years. Uh. And uh, Dante is, uh, is an interesting author also because it allows to uh, be studied from different perspective, as a poet, mm-hmm. as a philosopher, as a theologian. Um, uh, and uh, uh, is uh, can be a synecdoche in, in a certain way of the medieval studies. Uh, what uh, it may uh, I, I have not really a clear idea on that. There is, a, uh, so to speak, a predominance of Dante in uh, Italian studies that uh, uh, inevitably produce also lot of repetitions and uh, publication. Well, I was just uh, making this uh, reflection with a friend a couple of years ago. If a scholar today would like to read all what is published on Dante only in English, he wouldn't have the time technically to do that. Yeah. Uh, at this, I wonder whether it is, uh, it is really something necessary if we, have really, if we really need uh, another dissertation. I think that uh, the problem is that there is also connection with the particular institutional uh, job market in which a dissertation of Dante means that someone can teach on Dante in uh, yeah. more or less everywhere. Uh, they need someone to teach on Dante. While it's not obvious that someone has to teach uh, on um, Guittone d'Arezzo or, or Francesco de Barberino, but uh, but uh, in any case, uh, here these uh, studies uh, are, are very strong, and uh, vi- really honor to be. Here. Uh, it's it's uh, also for you to be graduate students of the Medieval Institute is quite is quite uh, nice. Oh
1: <laughs> yeah yeah we, we are. Very blessed with different people who are very skilled here. And there are, are yeah, as you said, Dante studies here are rich um, and impressive. We recently had a series of lectures on Dante um, that was very enjoyable. Again, just to see the different angles and different kinds of scholarship that Dante invites. As you said, really the whole of medievalists can gather on a figure like Dante and, um, or Dante's world, right? Exactly. And do different studies um, in some ways relating to him. As you, you mentioned the phrase, and I, I want to uh, have you define it for us a little bit more and explore it with us,
2: uh, romance
1: philosophy.
2: The 1st of November, 1972, so precisely half century ago, mm-hmm. in Venice, a great Midwesterner Passed away Ezra Pound, ah. and a young Ezra Pound in 1910 uh, wrote uh, the Spirit of Romance, which was the um, the result of a series of uh, lectures on literature, a sort of introduction to European literature, but much focused on the early uh, European literature. That for him was the courtly uh, literature, the troubadour yeah. uh, and Dante is already the beginning of uh, is before Dante I would say that uh, and in the very first pages he, he, he has this formula um, the history of literary criticism is largely the uh, vain struggle to find a terminology to define something mm. um, and I wonder whether the history of philosophy is not also largely a vain struggle to find a terminology to define something. So uh, uh, to find a terminology is also an attempt to uh, help people to go out of some uh, trodden path and to see from a different angles. That may be the terminology is not very significant, someone else can be can find ones better. So the idea Romance philosophy is just uh, uh, made on the example of the well-known syntagm uh, syntagma uh, Romance philology, which is a is a discipline, etc. I make another digression, but I hope that yeah, the, yeah. the, the, dots, clear, the yeah. dots go together. I think it's one of his last uh, texts before he passed away. In the preface to the second edition of Orientalism, Edward Said, uh, um, it's a very interesting text, this, second, uh, this preface to the second edition, because on the one side, it takes a bit distance from the reception, which he considered that betrayed the, the original project in many senses. And then he insists how he came about uh, with that that idea. He makes a list of influence going back to German scholarship etc. and the last in the list but uh, the rhetoric if you read you clearly see that the last is the first so what he put last is what was really the most influential he said and uh, the uh, German uh, romance philologist and he mentioned Eric Auerbach, Leo Spitzer, and Ernst Robert Curtius. Well, uh, this is interesting because if I look at my experience as a reader of Dante, uh, many scholars have helped me. Certainly, work like those of Gilson has been an uh, important reading. But where I really got the original insights, the most productive uh, hypotheses—what uh, really uh, brought me to write something, to try to give a contribution—were indeed the works of Auerbach or Curtius. and those were not historian of philosophy; those was uh, Roman, uh, Romanist, uh, mm. even a kind of romance philology, which doesn't exist anymore in that in that. Uh, with that uh, sort of feature, and so uh, the first motivation was why these uh, kind of scholar are those who, are, who help me the most. Why not? Uh, uh, and I started to think which kind of approach, of angle, uh, or from which competences they came to be able to isolate certain. Uh, research question that turned out to be so productive and so fruitful. Right. Uh, and so it is a sort of debt to uh, to this that I, uh, I, I I use this expression romance uh, philo- philosophy but it has also to do with that culture which uh, is the culture studied by those German uh, uh, romance philologists. is a multilingual mm-hmm. uh, culture so is Uh, is not the opposition vernacular Latin, you know the study, McGinn, etc., vernacular theology. This has been a very important contribution in the 60s and 70s, and even later, to show that there is another theology, which is not the theology in Latin of the school, which is no less important if you want to add even your research on the apocalyptic literature, yeah. is, is a kind of vernacular uh, theology. Absolutely. And uh, then there was other scholar who stressed the monastic, uh, which is even uh, different, etc. But uh, I wanted a bit to try to isolate a sort of layer, a sort of network, which has a uh, a certain unity, uh, and uh, uh, for instance, is multilingual, so it's not vernacular against Latin, but is Latin and mm. other languages, is uh, extra scholastic, but is not anti scholastic, and usually uh, the people involved in it had uh, some contact or had been educated, or even some of them are active uh, in the university, etc. It has an encyclopedic ambition, but uh, uh, what we could call sectorial encyclopedia. So it's an encyclopedia in which certain parts are really uh, quick and compressed, uh, and other uh, more connected with what we could call uh, anthropology, uh, uh, philosophical anthropology, or. politics are much more expanded mm-hmm. um, certain problems uh, problems of demotion, a problem of love, a problem of, of uh, election recognition, uh, nobility became uh, Present everywhere. So there are a series of features that allow even an approach uh, that uh, give uh, room to a sort of first person approach, a lot of use of uh, uh, narrative uh, 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 literary genre to express uh, these uh, kind of uh, contents. And these allow to recognize a sort of culture uh, in which Which is the utility of recognizing this culture? Well, once, uh, if this pattern really exists, as I uh, came to, uh, I'm now convinced, even though the research can produce further uh, evidence for that, um, this allows us to uh, multiply the mediation. So, uh, for instance, Dante, if we look at Dante from this perspective as a romance philosopher, Uh, then we could study the place in him of uh, scholastic debates uh, of theory uh, that we find in the theological sum, etc. But uh, we should uh, um, uh, assume that they are mediated by this culture. They are not immediate. In other words, his identity, we come to your first question, his first identity as a thinker, is not the schoolman, is mm. not. not the preacher, is not is the uh, curtly this the, the, uh, sort of uh, figure which I for the mieux eh, I call uh, the romance uh, philosopher. Right, um, and uh, so is an attempt to let a pattern emerge. Mm. Of course, this pattern doesn't exclude other patterns. Yeah. And what became interesting it is to see the level of integration of these with the other. And we have to recognize there are authors for which this pattern doesn't give any added value and just create confusion. To, But in other cases, it is illuminating because it explains why certain author. Write certain things, say certain things, which seems otherwise uh, uh, surprising or mm-hmm. or not uh, obvious at all, and allows also to ask questions that uh, sometimes are not uh, asked. Yes.
0: So this is this is really a very multi-layered kind of approach, um, and it's a lot of it's about identity and it's networks of transmission and yeah. how these these kind of romance ideals if we can say that these these kind of influential texts are circulating and but it, it i mean it makes me think a lot of this kind of ry- rhizomatic approach it's not this or this it's this and this and this and this and it just keeps proliferating but
2: uh, with a given uh hierarchy or an order of uh, uh priorities okay so the end uh, because there is a tendency which uh, is perfectly understandable to uh, make a claim in, fa- in favor of pluralism, also because it's very nice, generally speaking. and uh, uh, But this, if it is made uh, just in, in a sort of uh, plain and uh, unsophisticated way, doesn't really help uh, yes. from a scholarly point of view. Because, okay, uh, for instance, one of the uh, attempts in the early 2000, well, well, we do not speak anymore of medieval philosophy. We start to speak of medieval philosophies. As such, uh, is, a, is a little step in the negative sense that it casts doubt on the idea there is one way of doing philosophy, period. But apart from that, in the constructive uh, hermeneutical analysis, is, it gives very little. Because, right. okay, there are many philosophies and then are many do can we st- may we still speak of philosophy or we have to call each uh, of these philosophers with a name and each has his own uh, her own story and a period so this is uh, is a bit the um, the challenge uh, the challenge uh, behind and uh, as you said uh, it is a question of uh, transfer and uh, uh, tracing uh, in concrete way how this happen uh, uh, in a certain uh, uh, I give just an example uh, that maybe I will quote uh, again, I don't know because uh, the lecture I, know, yes, I, yes. I have not written any lecture so it will be an impromptu speech uh, so maybe I say this again or uh, since yeah. I had already said uh, here I won't repeat oh, no, no. everything is on um, the you may remember that in this famous book that I think has been also translated into English but I never checked uh, uh, La Civilisation de l'Occident Medieval by Jacques Le Goff um, he speaks of the Crusades and he makes this uh, this sort of, uh, the only fruit of uh, the Crusades was the um, uh, abricot. I don't know the, the abricot, I think is the name in English. It's yeah, yeah. A, a Syrian yeah. abricot. Uh, to say that basically the Crusades brought nothing, mm-hmm. brought pain and violence, eh, but brought nothing to you. Well, uh, this is, uh, of course, Le Goff is brilliant. This image is brilliant. First of all, it's not true this because it seems that the abricot came via uh, the Andalusian Spain (laughs) independently (laughs) from (laughs) from the crusade. Right. Um, And uh, and so this is the first point. But the second point is that if you look at this culture that I'm trying to to map, uh, there is a fascination uh, in all the author for instance i will try to speak uh, Dante Margherita Porrete, Thomas Aquinas uh, there is a form of course different in each of orientalism so there is this fascination of uh, uh, which of course with jerusalem for a christian uh, but this is strictly connected with the crusade crucif- it's not a concrete result through a result uh, mm-hmm. on the political level But on the, uh, let's say, uh, imaginary level, Mm -hmm. it is extremely powerful, because the uh, Chivaric literature from the 12th century until the 14th, even 15th century, has this image. Uh, Think a figure of Francis of Assisi. How uh, powerful for Mm -hmm. him was this myth of going to the crusade that he will do in his own way, um, uh, let's say sublimating, uh, but uh, the idea of the knight that goes, this is absolutely fundamental to understand uh, Francis of Assisi. Uh, And even this idea the chivalric dimension in Francis of Assisi is something that in my opinion should be better studied. Uh, But if you study from the perspective of uh, the Franciscan or, or let's say, or what came uh, after, uh, you don't see those aspects that are so evident if you look at him in Mm -hmm. his web of reference of the literature and of uh, even the way in which, for instance, he became such a fascinating figure for Dante.
1: Yeah. So for a figure, you mentioned some big names, Uh, right? For a figure like Aquinas, Right, who has um, been claimed by so many fields and put in so many, you know, different boxes. Some helpful in their time, some less so. Um, how would you introduce a, 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 a titan like Aquinas in this context of romance philosopher?
2: Yeah, in many ways. Uh, for instance, uh, Aquinas and these the research in the last twenty years as. To- has made a lot of progress, uh, gave an unprecedented, well, probably not totally unprecedented because uh, his master Albert the Great is certainly another key figure in this respect, uh, attention to the text of the uh, Islamic philosophy, integrated in key moments of his own thought. For instance, in uh, the commentary on the sentences when he speaks of the beatific vision, which is the highest Goal to which the uh, the human intellect can aspire, the the human being can aspire. He adopts exactly what uh, uh, Averroes has elaborated for the intellectual vision, natural intellectual vision. He adapts for the supernatural model, but but this is extremely. If you think a moment is extremely daring, of course there is a transformation, but you transform a material that uh, many other authors would never think of using mm-hmm. in yeah. that respect. Second, uh, he, uh, this is well known. This I probably mentioned uh, in the lecture. Uh, if you look at the Summa, which is is more. Personal work not so was not the most read in his uh, days, and certainly not the most read immediately after his uh, his death. But his more personal work, for sure, uh, you have this section in the uh, secund- prima secunda on the human emotion, the passions. Right. This is something that exists in no other theological summa before. But uh, it's so, is an elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. So you see all this writing in which the problem of passion either was treated as something negative to be condemned in the section vices, yeah. or Aquinas, before speaking of virtues and vices, mm. does this treatment which is a book in itself on the human passion. Uh, again, why? Why does that? Uh, You know that one of the poets of the um, Sicilian school was Rinaldo d'Aquino. There was a moment in scholarship where they thought that this Rinaldo d'Aquino was the brother of uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, This seems uh, nowadays no more, uh, there is no evidence for that. But we have evidence that uh, Aquinas, Thomas, has a brother named Rinaldo, uh, who uh, was uh, put to death because he was considered to have participated in the famous conspiracy against uh, Friedrich II, together with Pierre de Levigne, etc. Well, uh, let's say a moment. Uh, I don't know if this happens still today in the United States, um, but if you choose a certain name uh, for, for a son, uh, it may say something on the cult of culture of the parents. Well, Rinaldos is a name of the chanson de geste. He's a hero of the chanson de geste. So, if you name one of your kids Rinaldos, maybe he's like uh, today, I don't know, if you name uh, after a certain, uh, there are people who are m- much influenced by movie uh, mm-hmm. movies and they give these improbable names to their children who poor them. Uh, they have to carry for the rest of their lives. But uh, um, so uh, Thomas uh, was in contact with a culture which he didn't ignore. And uh, when he uh, had uh, the task to writing uh, uh, this Summa, uh, he could have thought uh, something along the following uh, uh, reflection. Well, either we do as if, these uh, debates on uh, uh, love, uh, uh, etc., doesn't concern us. But then, which pastoral care can we hope to do? If we ignore what people care, mm-hmm. what uh, people sing in the street, the text condemned uh, by Tempied in 77, 1277 is the De Amore of uh, André uh, Chaplin. Um, which is not a scholastic text is an extra scholastic text and so the idea is to integrate this word in order to and and this integration is something that other schoolmen contemporary or before him didn't uh, didn't do and is a quite revolutionary move mm-hmm. which in my opinion can have uh, uh, these uh, this motivation of uh, of the the awareness of uh, this culture and the, the topic, like the topic of love, we, eh, the entire treatise on the passion by Aquinas is constructed. The fundamental passion is the passio amoris. Eh? The, the passion of love, which right. is not no more considered as negative in itself, uh, is the fundament of all those passions. He says that the passion of love is in itself neither good nor bad. Right. and this seems a quite neutral statement, but uh, uh, to make a neutral statement in a context, I'm speaking of the uh, academic theological context, in which there was a clear condemnation of love as passion mm-hmm. yeah. is not neutral so being neutral when nobody's neutral yeah. is a quite bold move, it's yeah. not neutral and the uh, uh, this is an example.
0: So Aquinas' philosophy was in many ways a very grounded practical philosophy. It's one that responded to the the real or the real world, the real emotions that people felt, the real passions they had. And as you say, he was also engaging with I mean, this is the grossly oversimplified things, but essentially pop culture. Yeah. Right? In the same way, as you say. People name their children after their favorite uh, romance figures, just like now there are thousands of poor kids who are named Daenerys after the <laughs> character from Game of Thrones, which didn't go down too well in the end. But but it's the same kind of idea, right? Yeah. Where Exactly. And I think that's another moment where you see that, getting back right back to what we were talking about before, how the medieval and the postmodern are so similar. Once again, we're seeing another example where actually the medieval and the postmodern Culturally, are very, very similar. We have the same habits. We have the same interests. We do the same things. We both celebrate, you know, the the text we love in the similar way, and it influences the philosophy as well. For some, I guess, at the time, radical thinkers. Mm. Interesting. Well, th- this has been a, a fantastic conversation, and thank you so much again for for taking the time to sit down with us. If our listeners want to find out more about you and your work, is there anywhere that they should go?
2: Well, uh, if uh, they are um, uh, student uh, uh, in search of a good place to graduate before coming to the Medieval Institute for a PhD, they should consider Leuven. There is an international program, all in English, from the bachelor up to... There are no taxes. It's almost free. Uh, the level is quite good. And, Despite my presence, and uh, and uh, so that is a is a good place to. Come. We have a lot of North American students. We have sixty six countries represented this year in the international program. It's a very large international program, and uh, so well maybe the advertisement not for my personal research but let's say for the institute where I work. Uh, I'm very happy to be there. and um, and is also a place. Now we have also an agreement. you may know. Uh, my research unit and the medieval institute have an exchange agreement. you may know that has been signed uh, uh, two years ago. So it's even easy. For PhD student to decide to came for two three months, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, this agreement, unfortunately, doesn't apply to master student, etc. Because it's so different the fees. But um, but let's say uh, to cons- to put Leuven on the map of yeah. medieval studies, I think uh, is uh, interesting and useful.
1: Indeed, yes. Um, well, again, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us, um, and we'll meet with you all next time. In the Middle Ages.
0: Meeting in the Middle Ages is sponsored by the Medieval Institute of the University of Notre Dame with a generous grant from the Medieval Academy of America. If you have any questions for a medievalist, send them to us at meetinginthema at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at meetinginthema and Instagram at meetinginthemiddleages. For more information on some of the topics raised in this episode, head on over to the episode description. Thanks for listening.